KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, they work to improve the lives of children in Philadelphia, and they were the first to start a fundraising effort for the family members that perished in that devastating Fairmount fire. We sit down with children first. Our newsmaker this week is founder and director of the Greater Philadelphia Martin Luther King Day of Service. We'll learn all about Dr. King's message and the importance of community service. The King holiday is really a way of embracing his mission, of social justice. Our Philly Rising Changemaker this week is all about the development and self-advocacy of our young Black girls. One of our missions is to make sure that Black girls are represented. It's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's straight ahead on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm your host, Raquel Williams. When the devastating fire that claimed the lives of 12 people in Fairmount, the city was devastated. Actually, the country was devastated by the massive loss of life, which included nine children. Now, I was able to catch up with an organization the very next day that stepped right up and launched a fundraising effort that took off immediately. Children First of Philadelphia works to improve the lives of our region's children by developing initiatives and advocating for quality health care, child care, public education, and family stability. They'd never raised money for an individual family until that day, and we are here to learn more about the organization. With us today is Donna Cooper. Donna Cooper is Executive Director of Children First. Thanks, Donna, for joining us. Oh, nice to be here. Great to be with you, Raquel. Donna, before we delve into the day-to-day mission of the organization, let's talk briefly about what led the organization to raise funds for the family, the victims of that devastating Fairmount fire. Well, it was really obvious to us that uh, these families were doing the best they could with the resources that they had. Uh, They were in public housing. They were in an overcrowded situation. And that puts anybody at risk and is a, a symptom of a public policy system that is not doing right by children. And we just thought... Look, we work to end gun violence. We look to make children's lives better at school, and it's all long-term. But here we could take immediate action to meet the needs of this, these two families who I think in general we have not done right by, and they are emblematic of so many families. So we started what we thought would be like a family fundraiser between staff and family and friends. And uh, it quickly grew from $2,000 to $20,000 to $40,000 to $60,000. And it's even higher than that now. And uh, obviously, uh, we're doing everything we can to get this money to these families as quickly as possible. We've already given some of the money to the family where, fortunately, three children got out alive, uh, living at their grandmother's house, looking for a new home, having lost everything that they owned. And then the the family where, you know, 12 people perished, uh, we're still working to connect with and make sure we get them resources as well. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for them, I want to say that people across the country step forward in amazing ways 
And now more than a half a million dollars has been raised for the family that really suffered the most hardship from the fire. Wow. We played a small role in making uh, the family lives better. And certainly for the family that made it out alive, because in front of them are the lives of three children who are growing up from this tragedy. And then the one child who lived in the other family, we just wanted to step forward and do the most we could. This is awesome. Have you been able to hook up with the families at all and talk with them? Well, the family that lives downstairs, the family with the three boys, uh, yes, we spent last Saturday together. Uh, What a wonderful family. The three boys do really good in school. They get A's. They're very interested in the life of Beige Martin Elementary, where they've gone their whole lives. Their mother lived in that community as she raised the children. She's pretty amazing. She just got her associate's degree and is working on her bachelor's and trying to make sure that this tragedy does not interrupt her studies. And her mother lived there with her. Um, So uh, an incredible extended family. Her grandmother, the children's great grandmother, has taken them in. And she has a very nice house in Philadelphia, but it's probably not set up to have three boys (laughs) and uh, three adults uh, crashing for a while until they figure out where they're going to live. But a wonderful family. And then through the Red Cross, we've communicated with the other family. They've gone through so much tragedy that we're trying to give them space and making sure that the Red Cross becomes our partner in giving them these resources. Right, right. What does the tragedy, uh, Donna, say about the housing situation here in Philadelphia? Well, it says, number one, we have a shortage of affordable housing units. We have a shortage of uh, supports for families who are overcrowded. So in the mind of the Public Housing Authority, you know, having 14 people on a lease in a four bedroom apartment was okay, And I can understand why they would say that because they don't have anything else to offer. But this is not a unique problem to Philadelphia. In fact, Philly is one of the more affordable cities in the the East Coast. But think about it. If Philly is affordable and 14 people had to live in one four-bedroom apartment, things are pretty bad. And that was the situation that children were living in. And there are children across the city who are living in apartments without heat, those that are managed by private landlords who may not be uh, doing the best by kids. And even in PHA units, uh, we know that there are children who are at grave risk because of the conditions of the units they live in. So we are really motivated by this to call on our federal lawmakers to step forward and really start thinking about housing policy in America. I have to tell you, Raquel, since the 1980s, there's been no housing policy in this country. Mm. So we are now in a 40-year period of having walked away from the bedrock principle of making a roof over your head affordable for your family. That has not been on the table since the 1980s. And You know, we had a fire. New York had a fire, what, only a week later? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And displaced tons of people. We're doing a very poor job in this country, making sure people can at least afford to put a roof over their head. Yeah, yeah. You know, 150,000 kids living in poverty uh, in Philadelphia. You know, that's a number that's staggering. And I don't think that we tend to think about the children when it comes to the, the poverty rate and looking at how, you know, it can affect them in several ways, you know, from healthcare to education and the like. 
How's the organization helped in those areas? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. I have to say that we're so proud that we played a role in making healthcare affordable to nearly every child who's in poverty. And what I mean by that is over the last 30 years, Children First and our partners have gotten the federal and the state government to create public health insurance programs. The Medicaid program that you know, and we all know, Health Choices in Pennsylvania, and CHIP really come out of our history of demanding that the government respond to needs for kids. So, you know, the fire, we helped one family. What we normally do is find policy solutions that help every family. And so in this case, uh, you know, in the in the 80s, Medicaid was a program that covered adults. And we and others began to bang the drum about we need to make sure poor children were covered. And first, it only went up to kids who were six years old. And then it went up to kids who were 12. And now it goes up to children who were 18. Well, that worked really good for kids whose families were super poor. But if you were a waitress and a laborer, you were not super poor, but you couldn't afford private health insurance. So the CHIP program was really born by a partnership that we forged here in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and our friends formed a partnership in Pittsburgh and became state policy. And so that passed like in 1991 in Pennsylvania in large measure because of the convening work that children first did together with partners. And then Bill Clinton became president and he took the Pennsylvania model national. So now 10 million children across America and working class families have health insurance. So in that 160,000 kids who are poor, nine out of 10 of them are covered by public health insurance. Thanks to the work of organizations like ours and certainly us children first. But by the way, Raquel, there's some kids who aren't, and they are children who are living here right now in Philadelphia, whose parents fled Central America or other countries for political persecution Mm. or economic imperative and live here without documents. And in Pennsylvania, those children are banned from enrolling in Medicaid or CHIP. And we have been uh, for three years now fighting to get the lawmakers in Harrisburg to agree that these children are not the people who broke the law and crossed their border. Maybe their parents did, but they did not. Right. And every day they're sick and can't see a doctor is a, a moral injury to all of us. And so we are working very hard to close that last gap in health insurance and make it possible for children who aren't living here legally in Philly, but growing up here and going to our schools and at our rec centers and active in our communities so that they can be healthy. Because when they're not and when they don't go to school, then they become challenges for their neighbors, their parents, the systems going forward. We want every one of these kids to have no reason to miss school associated with health. We don't want any school absenteeism because federal or state policy precluded them from being healthy. You have so many programs that advocate uh, for children. Talk about some of the reasons that children here in Philly need a powerful advocate. Well, let me just say, with such a high poverty rate, Philadelphia is served not by just by us, but we sort of lead in bringing people together to say, look, what do these children who are poor need to advance their lives? They need to go to high quality pre-K. They need to be in amazingly great childcare. They need to have families with enough income to put a roof and over their head and food on the table. Those families may not be able to afford all the food they need. So they need supports to get nutrition, whether it's SNAP or WIC. And families need great schools. And so what we do is we are the vehicle by which we are 
convene and build the coalitions that build the political power for the kinds of changes that are needed for children. And so what that means is last year, we built the coalition that delivered almost $100 million to the Philadelphia School District, right? We built the coalition that now has 60% of the children in Philadelphia in high quality pre-K for at least two years before they start school. We built the coalition that's improving childcare across the, the Commonwealth and specifically in Philadelphia and the Southeast region. That's why we need a child advocate like us. It's to bring together good people who are working directly with children, organizations that are working together with children, business leaders, philanthropists, government partners to work together for scale solutions to make the lives of children better, especially those kids who aren't getting a decent shot in life because they are either in really poor families or look, let's face it, Black and Hispanic and immigrant children face extra hurdles, right? right? Life isn't easy. And it's our job to remove those hurdles because every one of them is a future rock star and we need to make it possible for them to shine. Right. Of course, all children deserve that opportunity to shine and to thrive, of course. And you mentioned early childhood uh, education, which we all know benefits kids. The earlier they start, the better. And the outcomes as they get older are excellent because of early childhood education. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of it? For every Every dollar that the government invests in making pre-K and high-quality early childhood education available to children, particularly children who are poor and children of color, the taxpayer gets back $7 in return, meaning that early investment comes back in a lifetime of success for these kids. It comes back in them going to college having no interaction with the criminal justice system, growing up and becoming a taxpayer. I think about our own early childhood policy director. Her family came here as Hmong refugees to America, right? So she's from Southeast Asia. Her family doesn't speak a word of English. She gets enrolled in Head Start, right? Right. Um, Where she grew up. Mm -hmm. Ends up on a PhD track at the University of Wisconsin. That, That happens because we made a commitment to the youngest, poorest kids in this country and said, we're going to remove your barriers to opportunity. Well, you know, Pennsylvania was a state in which getting access to early childhood education was nearly impossible to high quality in 2003. And Children First and our partners built coalitions statewide that really created the will among state lawmakers to say, okay, we're going to invest in kids. Mm -hmm. And so now hundreds of millions of dollars of state money is making it possible for all these little three and four year olds to go to great pre-K eager and ready to learn. And I have to tell you that when we started this work, most state lawmakers thought women were home. Like, why do they need to go to pre-K? All these women are at home. And if they aren't home, they should be. Really? What year is this? 2003. (laughs) Okay. And so, you know, you could be offended by that, but we saw that as a challenge. And we showed them mother after mother who was working and worried about the quality of the childcare that her children were going to. And fathers who wanted their wives to work because they needed more income. Single income earners aren't a model that works anymore in America. So we showed them that one, the economy is not producing enough for single earners. Number two, women were working. And number three, even if women are at home, when children are in high quality early childhood programs, 
their learning is so much greater than one parent can provide. They're not a trained early childhood educator. Of course, a parent is a child's first and most important teacher, of course. Right. But other teachers play roles in the lives of children. And so we are dogged in trying to get to that 100% mark. We want 100% of the children in our region whose parents want them to go to high quality pre-K to be able to do it. And here's the problem. If you were a middle-class family, you'd be paying fifteen dollars to $16,000 a year to send your kid to pre-K. Right, yes. Well, if you earn $100,000 a year, no problem. <laughs> if you earn $40,000 a year, it's just not possible. Right. And most people that we know, and most people in our city are earning around 40000 or less. We try to remove that barrier because that is the pathway to opportunity. So, um, you know, in Philadelphia, about five years ago, enacted a soda tax. Very yes. controversial. Yes. And, you know, we really led the charge for that soda tax because we understood that it was going to be really hard to get any new money for pre-K. But we had to do whatever it takes. And a lot of people got mad at us for saying we were for the soda tax. But right now, that soda tax is covering the cost of nearly 4,000 children in Philly to go to pre-K. That's on top of the state money that's down here and in the southeast to make pre-K available. But we have a long way to go. There's 106,000 children in the state who should be in pre-K programs every year that aren't. And so we have a long way to go, but it's groups like ours that take the time to build the political strategy and to understand how to get lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to see the benefit of these programs for children and then bring the parents and the citizens to them to say, we will support you when you enact this. That's what we do. And we're really proud of our track record. And, you know, these are really hyper-partisan times, right? Republicans and Democrats, they don't talk to each other much, right? <laughs> right. But we, we talk to Republicans and we talk to Democrats and we find common ground because on some level, children is the place where we can see our future together. And we have found that we can build that that coalition between the parties for kids. That's great. That's great. Children being the common ground. And, and that, that makes so much sense. You know, the report you released last spring pointed to the disparities in um, education for children in underserved communities. Can you touch on just a few of the key findings from that particular report? Yeah, so that report was called No More Dreams Deferred. And what it really did is examined the racial disparities in the suburban school districts, right? So outside of Philly, there are 60 school districts in the four counties in Pennsylvania. And uh, we really looked at what's going on in the achievement of Black and Hispanic students. And uh, one of the things we found is that the more concentrated a school is with Black and Hispanic students, the less money that school has to educate them. That's unacceptable, Mm -hmm. right? We also found that Black and Hispanic kids were disciplined by their schools at much higher rates than white children for the similar offense. So again, uh, something's going on there. We also found that children of color were less likely to be in AP courses, advanced placement courses in these schools, even though their achievement levels of the share of kids who would qualify for those courses were, would suggest they would be in the AP courses at much higher rates. So we began to go a little bit deeper and we found 
more than one children of color in high school who had tried to get in an AP course, but the school district didn't think that they were up to the rigor. And we began to help those kids in those school districts see an opportunity to trying it. And where those children have been admitted into the AP courses, they're doing just fine. So, you know, some districts thought, well, I don't want her to fail. I'm not sure. Now that thinking might go on for some white kids too, but it was going on at scale for kids of color, right? And I don't think it was done out of a malice towards the children. I think it was done out of an overprotective measure that is internalized by this is a good student and I don't want her to fail and it'll show up on her college record. So let's keep her in the regular track. It's complicated because when we talk to people in districts, we seldom see malice. We see you know, what I would call institutionalized racism with some kindness, right? Yes. And it's just not the right way to be. Yes. And we also began to talk to them about the infringements that like a kid who maybe was making a lot of noise in the hallway and was rambunctious, he might get a detention if he's black, if he's white, he might just get sent down to the principal's office, right? And we started to talk to people about why they're doing that. And really what we found is a pretty big sort of There's a fear factor, a cultural schism Mm. around really knowing how to feel comfortable disciplining kids of color in majority white districts. And so that that talks about training and support. And the most interesting thing we found was the kids saying they tend to act out because they don't feel safe and welcomed in the districts. That when there are assemblies, when there are things going on, who they are, what they are in their community isn't celebrated the same way it is for their white peers. Okay, And so, you know, this is not unique. Nationally, we see this data that most school discipline issues among children of color really stemmed from um, the need to make those children feel safe Mm -hmm. and feel like there's adults looking out for them and feeling welcomed. These are easy things to change. But again, there's institutional bias in thinking about that. Let's say you went to a white school district. It's been white for 30 years. And now all of a sudden it's becoming more diverse. And you have to think about change. Well, change is hard for everybody, right? And there's also the theory like, well, we don't want to give them a break. Well, that's not what we're talking about, right? So there's just sort of, it's a lot of work. And what we're finding is a lot of receptivity from the school districts in the suburbs to really rethink this because they're recognizing that their their normal practices, which some would call institutionalized racism, some might say overprotection, some might just say a norm, is uh, holding back the performance of children who could be bringing up the performance of the whole school district. And so lifting all boats is becoming, uh, you know, a really strong mantra that we're talking about with these districts. Eventually, though, I will tell you, we have to crack the funding issue. As I said, the more children of color, the less the school has to spend. That's state policy. Mm -hmm. And we lead the statewide campaign to change that. And that is on trial right now in Pennsylvania. This state's school funding system has at its base a trajectory that goes right along with race. We had to change that. And that's happening in the courts right now. You know, the findings of that report, uh, just so eye opening and sobering. When you brought those findings back to these districts and and, and talked to them about the institutionalized racism and the, the bias that they may not even realize that they have. What was the response? Very eager to talk about it. 
There's some school districts where there aren't that many children of color and the findings were not as pronounced because the, you know, if they're, if you're New Hope Solbury and you have less than 3% of children of color, there's less data to work with there. But mostly the districts that are more diverse and getting more diverse every day, you're like, look, what'd you find out about us? We want to see the data. We want to talk with you about that. We want to start to really address this because we're here for kids. And so that's been great. But I will say that lately, the conservative utilization of this red herring critical race theory has begun to make it very hard to have these conversations in public at school districts Mm -hmm. because they are dividing the community uh, from what used to be a unified interest in every child to now, how do I protect the majority white children from having any resource taken away from them that would benefit them going to another child? That's working on a theory of shortage rather than abundance. And the people who run these school districts, they're much more visionary than those parents, but they're held right now, I will say by the debate and curious about how to move forward without inflaming that debate because children aren't in that debate. It's an adult debate. It is. And it's harming children. Wow. Uh, Certainly that is a controversial topic and a topic in and of itself that uh, needs further exploration. But before we wrap things up with you guys, there was something that caught my eye with regards to the programs that you guys have. And one of them, it's called Girls with Options, having to do with the, the teen pregnancy rates. If you could talk about that real quick, tell me more about Girls with Options. Yeah, so across our region, Black and Hispanic girls are still getting pregnant when they're teenagers at higher rates than white girls. Now, just so everybody who's listening knows, America has done an amazing job driving down its teen pregnancy rate. It's dropped by 90% since the 1990s, fortunately. And so we really thought, why is it that girls who are Black and Hispanic are still having babies at a higher rate than their white peers? And we thought we would ask them. So what Girls with Options was an effort where we talked with about 20, 25 girls from across the region, and we had Black and Hispanic, in Spanish and English, therapists and psychologists talking to girls about why it is that that's happening. And they they told us pretty bluntly They don't understand reproduction. They don't know who is responsible for sexual protection, boys or girls. In fact, they don't think either of them are. And that they don't know what their reproductive options are. Yes, these are real. So when I was coming up, you know, there was a lot of public health information. Classes and school, all that kind of stuff. Believe me, that's not happening like it was when we were kids. And so what Girls with Options did is work with these girls to create a curricula with them Mm -hmm. that we would then, these uh, facilitators would uh, take out to other girls. And so over a year and a half, we talked to 800 girls and taught them the curricula and in groups. And we had them, the whole idea of this is that we want to create peer groups among girls who are having these conversations, frankly, because in order to talk to a boy about like sexual protection, you have to be comfortable yourself. So you got to practice, right? So girls with options really gave girls a chance to practice, to understand when they do and when they don't want to have a baby, like have a plan. When do you want to have a baby? When you're 25, when you're 30, 22, what is it? 
probably not 14 or 15. So like, if that's true, like let's start having that conversation and make sure you can say those words and you can say those words to a guy and you know what your options are. So ultimately what we are also trying to do is get girls to use what's called long acting contraceptive, which is basically an IUD because IUDs have been redone since we were children. And, um, we were able to drop in, in, in some states, they've been able to drive down the teen pregnancy rate to, you know, much further by girls using long acting contraceptive. And so we taught girls about that option so they could take advantage of it. Super exciting project that now a partner of ours is running through her organization called Girls Rain. And she's continuing to work with girls uh, across the city on training them in sex ed and how to make a plan for when you want to have a baby and right. make it sure it's not while you're a teenager. Absolutely. The good old fashioned birds and bees conversation. It seems exactly. like we're not having this. Oh my goodness. So much work, so much more work needs to be done. Donna, how can people find you and the organization and get more information? Thanks for asking. So you can find us at childrenfirstpa.org. And uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Children First PA. And we would love to have you call us, get involved, donate to support our advocacy, join us in city council or in Harrisburg, be part of our new child care voter campaign, sign your young person up for our new justice and education youth movement, and help us make sure that our public officials deliver for children. That's what we're here to make happen. And we do that when citizens join us and stand with us to make that demand. Awesome. Awesome. Children First, a powerful advocate for children uh, in Philadelphia. Donna Cooper, Executive Director, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you. Todd Bernstein is the founder and director of the Greater Philadelphia Martin Luther King Day of Service to be held virtually at Girard College on January 17th. KYW Sherrod Day Howard spoke with Bernstein about the significance of the event and the impact it's meant to have on the community. The civil rights movement marched right through the heart of Philadelphia more than a half a century ago. And leading the charge was Dr. Martin Luther King. So it's only fitting that in recognition of Dr. King's birthday and his contributions to civil rights around the world, that his legacy is honored right here in Philadelphia at Girard College with the 27th annual MLK Day of Service, organized by the president of Global Citizen and founder of the Greater Philadelphia Martin Luther King Day of Service, Todd Bernstein. Thank you so much for joining us, Todd. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Now, you've been an advocate for racial justice for decades, so this movement is personal. I've always had a, an interest and involvement in civil rights and human rights, going back to really high school days. And Global Citizen and the King Day of Service is not just about volunteering. It's really a way of having people who might not ordinarily meet or, or interact come together break down barriers, um, build understanding through um, working together, uh, working to try to solve pressing community challenges, uh, and to build that into ongoing civic engagement. And the King holiday um, is is more than just a, a mere celebration of one person, of Dr. King. It's really a way of embracing his legacy. Dr. King's birthday is more than just a birthday celebration. It is a way for us to embrace 
his mission, to make it our mission of social justice, to turn our concerns and words uh, into action, um, and not just to do it on the day celebrating his birth, but 365 days of the year. So this is more than just a, a day of service. This is really a continuation of the movement. And this year is different, of course, because of the pandemic. Now you've gone virtual and you say it's going to be a jam-packed day, right? So what are some of the online services going to include? Top of mind is is safety and everyone's health. Uh, we we learned this a year ago uh, when, when COVID started affecting you know large swaths of the population a lot of our initiatives became virtual um, that certainly is the case this year and uh, but I think that uh, we are focused um, on the overarching issue of celebrating Dr. King and combating racism and building community with a focus on uh, five principal areas, health justice, voting rights, early literacy, the whole educational component, economic justice, and gun violence. Uh, these are all efforts that Dr. King championed. So a number of those efforts are going to be virtual. However, at Girard College, under the banner of health justice, uh, working in partnership with the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium, we'll be doing COVID-19 testing and also with Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, giving vaccinations and flu shots. And all of this is really targeted at underserved communities. As we know, Black and brown folks have lower testing and vaccination rates. Kids, children across the country to date have about a 17% vaccination rate. I know that's higher in Pennsylvania, but the only way to really mitigate, to fight this virus that has taken over 800,000 lives is to get tested and to get vaccinated, to get fully vaccinated. So in part, you're recognizing that a lot of the inequities within the communities, the haves and have nots, is really evident in access to health care and, of course, voting rights. So that's one major focus. We will be kicking off a, a campaign in partnership with Senator Vince Hughes from West Philadelphia, City Commissioner Omar Sabir, with more than a dozen voter registration sites and voter education. Uh, and this will be an ongoing campaign. We'll be training poll watchers with the Committee of 70. And later in the afternoon at three o'clock, we will have a voting rights panel on Dr. King's legacy, voting rights and citizen action. Um, that will be led by U.S. Senator Bob Casey uh, with Senator Hughes and uh, City Commissioner Sabir and two other distinguished panelists uh, talking about you know, as we know, just in the in the last week or so, there's been so much going on. Which brings us to what's going on in Congress. Can you talk about that a bit and how Day of Service directly addresses this? Currently, the two bills in Congress are stalled, the John Lewis Advancement Act and the other Voting Rights Act, one to restore the voting rights that were gutted in 2013 in the Shelby versus Holder case. This is such an important issue. In my view, the, there will be a filibuster carve out so that we can restore these rights. And, uh, you know, it, there are uh, 19 bills in 34 states that have worked to undermine 
the right of everyone to vote, the most fundamental right we know. And as gun violence surges throughout the city, you found it necessary to address it, but from a more holistic angle. We're working in partnership with Temple University Hospital to have a series of workshops on training citizens in how to respond to gunshot wounds, creating tourniquets. One of the things that we've learned is that so many of the victims of gun violence actually die between the scene and on the way to the hospital. And they're often taken there not by ambulance, but by police car or by someone's car who happens to be nearby. And if we all learn more about how to how to respond to those those injuries and wounds, and we distribute tourniquets with training to communities of faith and local organizations, we can can help perhaps save a life or many lives. Um, but we also have to give young people the opportunity um, to be successful citizens. And that's why we're focused, focusing on economic justice and uh, a range of other opportunities to become more involved in their communities. And so it's a it's a holistic approach to, to violence and, and the justice system. And recognizing that the pandemic has really affected the black and brown communities disproportionately when it comes to lost wages and also lost work. You're offering a job fair. Can you tell us more about that? We have a 11th annual jobs fair, virtual 25 uh, employers with real job opportunities interviewing job seekers uh, under the guise of, of Dr. King's fight for economic justice. There, so there's a lot going on. One can go to our website, mlkdayofservice.org, learn about those opportunities and, and ways to participate. And you've really doubled down on making sure that healthcare was part of the focus here. Why? Not everybody knows, but in 1966, Dr. King said, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhuman. And, um, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. When we partnered with the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium and Dr. Ayla Stanford last year, um, it was in response to her efforts to bridge the gap um, among mostly Black and Brown populations who were not getting the same access. I think that that is certainly a continuing concern, and that's why our, our focus uh, is reaching out um, to communities of color and um, really narrowing the gap um, in fighting this uh, dreaded virus. And you say crossing the generational divide is really important here. Well, I, I think that one of the most important aspects of this is the involvement of young people. And uh, really young people know so little, by and large, about Dr. King, um, you know, I have a dream, maybe uh, what comes to mind, but to understand and embrace his legacy, one has to understand history. And uh, it's so important. And as you point out, this is really about education as well. It's about uh, breaking down the barriers of the classroom and going into the community to embrace what we learn about Dr. King's activism, uh, his ideals, and his uh, bringing broad coalitions together to fight for racial and social justice. Thinking now to how much 
partisanship is really going on in Congress. A lot of the racial injustices have been politicized. Can you talk about how that affects us here in Philadelphia and why it's so important to address this during the day of service? I think a lot of people forget that two of the supporters of the voting rights legislation were uh, George Bush and Ronald Reagan. And when voting rights has been voted on in the past, there has been you know overwhelming support. We are so politicized now. And I think that racism in the last five years under the previous president uh, wasn't just apparent uh, and present as it always has been, but it has been more acceptable in some circles to be racist and to um, you know follow um, the leadership of elected officials at the highest level. I think the reason for that is fear. I think it's fear of realizing that that uh, uh, decades and more of, of privilege um, and of, uh, uh, of white supremacy, frankly, with populations of color becoming the majority. I think people are afraid of losing what they consider to be their rights rather than recognizing and coming to the reality that um, we are getting to a point where uh, there are going, there is going to be more parity. I hope um, in in jobs and housing and education, um, and so so I do think it's a fear factor. Plus, I think in some ways it's a reaction to eight years of the Obama presidency. Um, I think that uh, uh, I, I think that he was an extraordinary president. Um, but I think that there is a uh, there is a sort of an awakening, a, a bursting, a catharsis of so many folks across the nation who, um, again, see their rights in jeopardy, which I would certainly argue is not the case, but came out in anger, um, uh, uh, rallied together through that fear. And, uh, uh, you know, which has contributed to an even more polarized um, nation. And we really have to recognize that that is the case. And we can't afford um, to go back so many years where a number of these uh, rights through legislation and Supreme Court decisions are being undermined. And that's one of the reasons that legislation and court decisions are helpful um, but attitudes and action is really the other component of this, which uh, which really has to change. And policing has a lot to do with racial injustices and how balance is afforded within communities. Will this also be addressed in the day of service? I hope it will. In the King Day of Service, we try to bring disparate forces together. That has involved the police uh, in Philadelphia and um, really building an understanding of what so many people in Philadelphia, black and brown folks go through in um, in their experience with policing and how necessary it is to have uh, reforms. I think that some of that uh, is happening, um, some of it as a result of the uh, uprising uh, following the death of George Floyd. Um, but again, we've got a we've got a long way to go and legislative action is one part of it. But but uh, other 
other ways of um, greater parity uh, is a part of, uh, you know, what's necessary. And this year, because it's virtual, you say this will give people an opportunity to have access that maybe didn't have it before. When projects are virtual, and I expect this to be the case with our um, three o'clock panel on voting rights and Dr. King's legacy, it really opens up the opportunity for people anywhere to participate. Um, traditionally, you have an initiative that a, a community organization puts together, and they put it together um, going into a community building process to determine what the most pressing issues are. Um, but it's usually people who show up um, at a location to be engaged and, and hopefully to be engaged not just that one day, but throughout the year, um, opening up uh, these opportunities uh, in a virtual setting really provides greater access um, and uh, unfortunately with a, uh, uh, with a forecast that I hope will change for King Day, um, we are at least guaranteed, even if there is inclement weather, that, um, that all virtual projects will be able to continue and really benefit everyone. And what would you like people to walk away from this particular MLK Day of Service with? A couple things. One, that this is really about hundreds of thousands of people within our region, millions of people across the country gathering together reflecting on Dr. King's legacy and deciding how that legacy can be used in a, in a forceful way to make it a living legacy where we use the teachings of Dr. King to be engaged together in change. And those decisions are made on the very local level, on the grassroots level. So I'm hopeful that that spurs a kind of groundswell of action that takes place on King Day and serves as a as a springboard and that and that we don't forget Dr. King that we don't just remember him on one day that we use his example in this fight for voting rights for education for justice reform we have to rally uh, and harness all the resources available which is human capital government, communities of faith, nonprofits, all realizing that in order to achieve fundamental change, that has to be something with a you know unified uh, collective. Thank you so much, Todd, for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. I hope that members of the community are out in force celebrating Dr. King in, in whatever way they think is the, is the best way. We're looking forward to addressing pressing community challenges. On October 26, 1967, six months before Dr. King was assassinated, he spoke to a group of students in Philadelphia. This is often referred to as his What is Your Life's Blueprint speech, where he emphasized the importance of meeting opportunity with preparation, saying in part, To you I say, my young friends, doors are opening to you, doors of opportunity that were not open to your mothers or fathers. And the great challenge facing you is to be ready to face these doors as they open. Meet the challenge. The MLK Day of Service virtual event will be held on Monday, January 17th. To learn more, go to mlkdayofservice.org or kywnewsradio.com. 
At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. I'm Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker, Tawana Jones-Morrison. She's an educator and school psychologist, but her passion project is a nonprofit she started five years ago called We Rain Inc. Now, this organization is unique because it teaches young girls self-empowerment and organizing and activism skills so that they can use those skills to uplift themselves and their communities. So, Tawana, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. I'm so happy to highlight you because you are definitely bridging communities. So first, tell us what We Rain stands for and how you got started. First, Rain stands for Rooting, Empowering, and Inspiring a Girls Nation. Our mission is for girls to develop the skills that they need to be advocates, activists, organizers, you know, and change agents in their own lives and communities. So I've been in education for over 20 years, and I've spent almost the entirety of my career in Philadelphia. I started off as a teacher in North Philadelphia at Vox. So my doctoral work actually led me to create this organization because the stories that I was hearing from the girls, and I'm like, what's happening is so scary for our girls, and they feel like they have nobody to turn to, nobody to talk to. They feel overlooked. So you started this organization we ran in 2016 and you just celebrated five years. What have you accomplished with your girls in the past five years? We've served more than 500 girls in those five years. What we teach the girls how to do is community organizing and activism. A lot of the things that they did this year were so cool because they did like COVID-19 outreach, vaccination information sessions. Um, We even had a Black Youth March for their lives that brought out community members. And so what do you think that special sauce is that gets the girls engaged and that keeps the older ones, you know, coming back to help? We emphasize something that is not emphasized in a lot of places, and that is the value of emotions and personal experience. And one of the things that we talk about very often is that your feelings and your experiences are valuable knowledge in the work that you're doing. Places don't talk to children or young people about their feelings. We've seen the increase in youth suicides, particularly for Black youth, and having an outlet and having somebody that they feel like they can talk to. So I think they feel supported. I think they, a lot of times, They say they really enjoy being able to talk to other Black girls about Black girl issues because these aren't the kind of things that they're usually talking about necessarily in in school, you know. And so it's a space where they they can have those conversations safely. And I love them, you know, so I think they feel that too. But I, I feel like really being able to build their confidence in terms of advocacy and activism. So many of them don't even know that you can like call your city council person or call your state representative and say like, listen, bro, I need more. We need more money for textbooks. You know, they don't know. And so it's so empowering for somebody to, you know, give you the permission to do that. You know, Tawana, I think what you're doing is so important because you're teaching these young women at such a young age how much power they have, you know, as individuals and as a collective. Absolutely. And that, and the other, the last thing I think is that we don't dictate a topic. So we had some girls who focused on community violence. 
We had some girls who focused on mental health. So it sounds like We Rain is really raising the next generation of leaders, huh? That's what we, that's the hope, you know. That's one of our missions is to make sure that Black girls are represented. You know, we look at Harrisburg, we look at the country at large, and Black women are underrepresented in government, period. And when we're not at the table, nobody's speaking on our behalf. And so we really want our girls to, even if they don't want to take a seat at that particular table, to be able to make their concerns known wherever they are, if it's in a doctor's office, the supermarket. All right, Tawana. So tell us how we can keep up with We Rain Inc. and what you have going on. We are on all of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We big on Instagram. We Rain, we, we dot rain, R-E-I-G-N. You can find us there. We also have a website, we rain.net. All of our programs are free. So there's no cost and we're virtual. So all you got to do is show up on the screen. We.rain, again, girls and donations is what we're always looking for. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for hashtag Bridging Philly. That's it for our Philly Rising Changemaker this week. I'm Antoinette Lee. If you know someone we should highlight next, please reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shower Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.